0: He who believes on the Son has everlasting life, but he who does not believe in the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. For there is no other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. Because we know that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Even so, we have believed in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. It's not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us by the washing of regeneration, that is, the renewal by the Holy Spirit." For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. As we prepare to study God's word this morning, let's bow our heads together and go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we're thankful that we have this time to focus upon your word, to come to understand more about our spiritual life. To be challenged in terms of our daily walk by the Spirit, and coming to understand that the spiritual life of this church age is one that is energized and led by God the Holy Spirit, who is working in us and through us to mature us as sons of God. Father, we're thankful that you have given us this grace, this privilege, the indwelling, the filling, the leading, the guiding of God, the Holy Spirit. And we pray that as we study today that this will become more clear to us, that we might be encouraged and strengthened in our walk by the Spirit. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, open your Bibles with me this morning to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, verse 14. We are in a study of Ephesians. We have finished down through ephesians uh, two twenty two and taking a break for a topical study related to God the Holy Spirit, so today we'll be looking at two passages romans eight fourteen and galatians five eighteen the only two passages in the New Testament that talk about the leading of the spirit, and there's a lot of confusion about this, just as there is some of these other aspects of the work of the Holy Spirit in the believer's life today. As we came to the end of this section from Ephesians 2:11 to 22, we notice that twice, there are two paragraphs and each paragraph ends with a reference to the ministry of God the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 2:18 says that for through him that is through Christ, that is through his death on the cross, we both have access, we both, meaning Jew and Gentile now together, we both have access by one spirit. It's the same spirit for Jew and Gentile. It's God the Holy Spirit, and uh, by means of the Holy Spirit, we have direct access to the Father. In Ephesians 2.22, Paul concludes by saying, In whom, that is, uh, in Christ, you are also being built together for a dwelling place of God. That's God the Father. So we have the Trinity here as well as in 2.18. And this building of the, of the universal body of Christ is a temple for the indwelling of God, as God the Father, as well as each individual believer who is a temple uh, for the dwelling of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. So this is accomplished by means of the Spirit again. And we see this phrase, and I keep emphasizing it, because often it is not translated clearly enough uh, in Scripture. Today we're going to see that this phrase, numity has a second meaning. But most of the time in the spiritual life passages, it's talking about uh, our walk by means of God the Holy Spirit. So we've looked at these ministries of God the Holy Spirit today. We've looked at his uh, <clears throat> His ministries to the world, restraining sin and evil, and we can just barely imagine what it must have been like in that period between Adam and Noah when there was no uh, really restraining ministry of God the Holy Spirit and the evil was so bad that God had to destroy the earth by a judgment of water, today we have the restraining ministry of God, the Holy Spirit, and he is identified as the restrainer in second Thessalonians, and that uh, when the rapture occurs, the min- God, the Holy Spirit who indwells church age believers, will be taken out of the world, that will end the restraining ministry, and God, as it were, gives it over to Satan to do what he is going to do to try to establish his kingdom. And he is given uh, permission uh, within certain boundaries that are somewhat limited um, to try to destroy the work of God on the planet. And it will not end well for him. And then we have God the Holy Spirit, according to John 16, to uh, his convicting ministry to the world. He convicts the world of, of sin righteousness and judgment sin because they have not believed in him and if you don't believe in him then we stand condemned already and so the focal point in any gospel presentation needs to be on faith in christ second there is he convicts them of of righteousness that they lack righteousness without righteousness we cannot have fellowship with god and that is supplied to us through the imputation of Christ's righteousness at the instant of salvation, and then judgment, because Satan is judged on the cross, and that is God's uh, strategic victory over Satan's attempt to, to uh, overthrow God's plan. So we looked at the Holy Spirit's ministries to the world, and then we've looked at... Uh, These ministries at the time of salvation, when we trust in Christ as Savior, we are regenerated, we get new life, we get a new human spirit, we are made alive again, we are baptized by the Holy Spirit where we are identified with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. We are each indwelt, every single believer at the instant of salvation is indwelt by God the Holy Spirit permanently and that cannot be lost. We are sealed by the Spirit, which marks us as God's possession, and we cannot lose our salvation. And then the only one that is, uh, uh, can be lost is the filling by means of the Spirit. This is an operation. It's based on, like us, uh, like sealing and like the leading of the Spirit. It's based on His indwelling. And when we sin, the ministry of God, the Holy Spirit, is no longer focused on maturing us but it's focused on getting us back into fellowship, back where we're walking by the Spirit so we can continue to go forward. And this morning we're going to look at what it means to be led by the Spirit. So if we've looked at what the Bible teaches about the ministries of God, the Holy Spirit, today in this church age at salvation, we looked at being filled by means of the Holy Spirit, that this is not part of the uh, eternal positional realities like uh, being baptized by the spirit or being indwelt by the spirit but this is a temporal reality whereby we are filled by the word of god by the holy spirit and this is in tandem with our walking by the spirit but when we sin we are no longer walking by the spirit we are in carnality something we'll be talking more about this morning we are in carnality, we are living like we're a spiritually dead uh, unbeliever, and we have to confess sin, 1 John 1, 9, to recover that, that operation of the Holy Spirit where he is filling us with his word. Ephesians five eighteen says do not be drunk by means of wine, in which is dissipation, but be filled by means of the Spirit. This is uh, t- similar to, or goes along with, our walk by means of the Spirit. When we're walking by the Spirit, He is filling us uh, with His Word. Colossians 3:16 has, shows that they're the same results from the command in Colossians 3:16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. It dwells in us richly when we are walking by the Holy Spirit, and He is filling us with His Word. When we sin that positive growth-oriented ministry uh, ceases and he's focused on getting us to recover our spiritual growth. When we are sinning, we are grieving and quenching the Holy Spirit, which is what we looked at last time, so that when we are out of fellowship, not walking by the Spirit, not abiding in Christ, and we are walking in darkness, Scripture says. That is when we are grieving the Holy Spirit according to Ephesians 4.30 and quenching the Holy Spirit. That should be uh, not Ephesians uh, 5.19, that should be First Thessalonians 5.19. Ephesians 4.30 says, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. And 1 Thessalonians 5.19, do not quench the Spirit. So now we're going to look at this doctrine of the leading of the Spirit. What does the Bible teach about the leading of the Spirit? For most people, it has something to do with divine guidance, something to do with decision-making. And in one sense it does, but that's not really the focus. There's only two passages that talk about the leading of the Spirit the first is in Romans chapter 8, verse 14, and the second is in Galatians five verse 18. Romans 8:14 8, says, "For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God." Now we're going to have to figure out what that, what that means to be sons of God because that, that helps in the interpretation. Galatians 5.18 says, but if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now, both passages use the same word in the Greek, uh, the word ago, uh, which means to be uh, led, that you are being guided, that you are being directed in a certain course. And we are led by the Spirit, as it is translated. And uh, this isn't quite the same phrase that we see in other places, where we have that preposition in plus the uh, instrumental of, uh, of Numa. Uh, we are led by the Spirit of God. It's simply the instrumental case of Numa without the without the preposition, but it means the same thing. And it's not like uh, so that phrase isn't the same as what we have in uh, being baptized by means of the Spirit or being filled by means of the Spirit. It doesn't indicate that the Spirit is the one who's performing the action. Remember when we, we talked about those all those nasty little prepositions when I was talking about baptism by the Spirit, that when you have that preposition in, it's indicating the instrument that God is using to accomplish the task. It is not telling us who's doing the leading. Now you're all confused. Basic grammar, if I say John hit the ball, John performs the action of hitting. If I say John hit the ball with the bat, the bat is the means that he has for hitting the ball. If we reverse it to make it a passive voice verb where the ball becomes the grammatical subject, the ball was hit by John, John is still the one doing the hitting. In Greek, to designate the one who is still performing the action, it always uses the preposition hoopa. It's very precise. Hoopa indicates the one who performs the action of a passive uh, verb. So when it says you're led by the Spirit, it doesn't say you're led Hoopa. So the Spirit's not doing the leading. It's still, it's never stated actually. So, but we can assume it's going to be the Father or it's going to be the Son. And the Spirit is used by them in leading us. Okay, That's, that's how we should understand this. So we'll get back to that in in a minute. But the problem that we have is people think that that the leading of the Spirit is some sort of oh, I like to call it liver quiver. It, it's some sort of inner feeling that that oh I I know this is what God wants me to do. The Spirit's leading me, I just feel it. Well, I had a seminary professor used to say, if you can tell me the difference between that feeling and uh, the unbeliever's feeling that he needs to do something, his intuitive insight, then then perhaps you might have a case. But since no one can make those kind of distinctions, everybody has these sort of emotive, intuitive insights. That's not what this is talking about. This isn't talking about some sort of light mysticism that somehow God is speaking to us. God only speaks to us today one way. If you want to listen to God speak to you, then pick up your Bible and read it out loud. That's the only way that God speaks to, to us is through his word. And it is God the Holy Spirit that he is using because God the Holy Spirit's the one who energized the writers of scripture. God the Holy Spirit is the one who, who gives us his word. So that's the only way that that we know that God is speaking to us. We can't just wake up in the morning and think we have a certain feeling or that God, the Holy Spirit, puts some impression on our mind because there's no scripture that gives us any way to discern whether that's just the same kind of impression that an unbeliever has or whether that is just because we had a double jalapeno pizza last night before we went to bed. Uh, we have to not get sucked into the the world's way of thinking in terms of this kind of light mysticism. Uh, the leading of the Spirit is something that is clear and something that is objective, and we have to ask, are these passages that we're talking about in Romans 8.14 and Galatians 5.18 are they talking about decision-making and divine guidance in the sense of, should I take this job or that job? Should I live in Houston? Should I live in Chicago? Should I live in uh, some small town somewhere? That's how most people take the leading of the Spirit. And what we're going to learn today is that has absolutely nothing to do with this. It is not talking about divine guidance in that sense at all. It is not seeking God's Help in terms of making day-to-day decisions. In that that sense, it is something much more significant than that. So, when we ask this question, is the leading of the Spirit the same as divine guidance? Um, no, it is not. Not in that sense of I need God to tell me what decision to make in this situation. It is in a broader sense. Because it is the Holy Spirit leads us with his word that gives us a foundation of doctrine, a foundation of biblical teaching in our soul that becomes the foundation from which we make wise decisions in terms of application. What we have to do is look at the context of these two passages to understand what they mean by being led by by the Spirit. And what we will discover is that the context of Romans 8 and the context of Galatians 5 are remarkably similar. And so we that similarity tells us exactly what it means to be led by the Spirit. So I want to direct your attention first to Romans 8, 12 and 13. We're going to go back to Romans 8.1 in order to pick up the context, but this is the conclusion of the first 11 verses. In those first 11 verses, uh, Paul is going to be contrasting the walk by the Spirit or walk according to the Spirit with the walk by the flesh. The flesh is a biblical term that just relates to the sin nature. And once again, just as in Galatians 5, Romans 8 talks about you're either one or the other. You're either walking according to the Spirit, walking by the Spirit, or you're walking according to the lust of the flesh. You're walking according to your sin nature, and you're living life, uh, life your own way. And after Paul walks us through Romans 8, 1 through 11, he says, Therefore... This is my our conclusion. Therefore, brethren. Brethren's an important term here. That tells us that he's talking to them as believers, not as unbelievers, and he's giving them truth that relates to the Christian life, not truth that's related to getting saved or getting justified. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors. Literally, this should be translated, we are under obligation, We're under an obligation because of God's grace, because of what he has done for us. And that obligation is, he says, not to the flesh. That is, we're not obligated to our sin nature. A lot of Christians live as if they're under obligation to their sin nature. They let their sin nature tell them exactly what to do all the time. We're not under obligation to the flesh or the sin nature to live according to the flesh. There's the key phrase, according to the flesh it's a Greek preposition, kata, which means according to a standard, or in light of a standard. The standard here is the standard provided by the sin nature. So we are not to live according to the standard of our sin nature. And then verse 13 starts with the word for. Now that's always an important word because it tells us that verse 13 is explaining further what was said in verse 12. And, he, and here and, and it, so it's saying the same thing, but in slightly different words. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Now what exactly does that mean? What does it mean that if you live according to the sin nature, you will die? A lot of people immediately jump to the either physical death, Or spiritual death. There are some who don't believe in eternal security. And so they would take that, well, if you live according to the flesh, you lose your salvation. But we have to remember that there are seven different kinds of death in the Bible. It's like baptism. People look at the word baptism, they immediately think that it involves getting wet, Whereas many of the baptisms in the Scripture, the only people who get wet are the people who are going to die. They're under some kind of judgment, like, like those at the Red Sea or those with the baptism of Noah, those who didn't make it onto the ark. So the first kind of death in the Bible is physical death. When our immaterial being, our soul, separates from the physical body, it's first indicated in Genesis three nineteen: from dust you came to dust you will return. It is mentioned again in Hebrews 9.27 that it is appointed unto man once to die. Once. No, regi- no, um, uh, no reincarnation. You're not going to come back as, as a rat or as a grasshopper or as uh, your brother-in-law or whatever. Once to die, and after that, the judgment. That's it. There is spiritual death when we are separated from God. Uh, Romans 5.12 says that in Adam I'll die, because Adam is the head of the human race. When he sinned, when he followed uh, Eve in her eating of the fruit, uh, nothing. I don't know that she died spiritually, but if she did and she separated from God, which is possible, the text just doesn't talk about it, it wouldn't have affected anybody else. But Adam's death was significant because he's the head of the human race. So when he ate of the fruit, he died spiritually. The two of them were now spiritually dead. They're separated from the Father. When God came to walk in the garden, they want to run and hide because they're afraid. They are spiritually dead. They're separated from the life of God. We've studied this in Ephesians two one, because there we Paul says that that you are born dead in your trespasses and sins. And in, in uh, Ephesians 4, uh, 18, it talks about being alienated from the life of God, that spiritual death. Sexual death is when you reach an age and you're no longer fertile. You're no longer able to have children, no longer, no longer able to have uh, sexual activity, this is mentioned regarding Abraham and Sarah in Romans 4:17 to 21 and Hebrews 11:11 11, 11 to 12. They're past the childbearing years, and so God had to do something miraculous to to energize Sarah's womb. I've heard a doctor, an obstetrician, go through all of the things that God had to do in order to make it possible for Sarah to to uh, uh, once again. Uh, have a, a, an egg, an ovum, and for and to to have it fertilized and to have her womb re-energized so that she could uh, carry a child and give birth. And it was one of the most phenomenal things that I've ever heard. All of the things God had to do to change her biological makeup so that she could again have a child. So there's sexual death. There's also positional death. Romans 6, 1 through 4 says that when we trust in Christ as Savior, we are identified with his death, burial, and resurrection. We become positionally dead to our sins. There's carnal death, and that's what this passage is talking about, that when we are not living in light of the life that God has given us, then our life experience is one of like the unbeliever, we are uh, in carnal death. We're living no differently from an unbeliever. Hebrews 6.1 talks about dead works. That's the product of, the, uh, of when we're walking according to the flesh. And then Revelation 2.11 talks about the second death, which is judgment in the eternal lake of fire. So this passage here talks about the fact that we have an option as believers we can live one way or we can live the other way. We can live according to the flesh or we live according to the Spirit. And if we live according to the flesh, we will die. We will have, We will live just like an unbeliever. We will not have joy. We will not have uh, happiness. We will not have the peace of mind that is uh, that would be ours if we were walking uh, by the Spirit. There would be no fruit of the Spirit, and we aren't living any differently from an unbeliever. But in contrast, if by the Spirit we put to death, you see, another sense of death is the idea of separation. Physical death is separation of our immaterial nature from our material nature. Spiritual death is separation from God. And so by putting to death the deeds of the body, this is an idiom for separating from the deeds of the body, meaning the deeds of the flesh and separating from sin. We are to put to death the deeds of the body. That is the challenge in spiritual life, is that to grow, it not only involves learning the word, but it also means separating ourselves from the things our sin nature wants us to do. And that's the continuous struggle Because we never get rid of the sin nature. The sin nature never becomes uh, less potent than the day we were saved. It doesn't get any easier. Sometimes I think it gets harder because the more we learn, the more we grow, the more we're aware of how really sinful we really are. Uh, and so again we see this contrast now that's what's important because the very next verse after this is the verse that we're talking about Romans 8:14 which says for as many as are led by the spirit of god these are the sons of god that verse which begins also with the word for indicating a further explanation of what is said in 12 and 13 is important Putting it in the context tells us what it's talking about. So let's just look at the broad context of Romans 1, I mean, Romans 8, uh, 1, uh, 1, 1 to 17. In verse 2, so each line up here on the chart, I, I put the verse out here on the far side. In verse 2, we have a contrast between the law of sin and death, that's the flesh, and the law of the spirit of life. In verse two he 's talking to believers. Look at that first verse. He says, "There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus so he 's talking about those who are in christ he 's talking about those who are believers in Christ. He, he quit talking about unbelievers back in back in chapter three, four and five talks about the gospel and how to be justified and reconciled and chapter six. And seven talk about the spiritual life. And now the Holy Spirit is brought into it. There is there now no condemnation to those who are in Christ. Why? Because we are justified. We have been declared righteous. We have his righteousness. And then he goes to into verse two. There's debate over whether the second half of verse one is part of the original text or not, because the same phrase, same clause is found uh, in verse 4 and so it is thought by many that the copyist at some point because it's not in a lot of manuscripts so the copyist at some point uh, copied that into verse 1 and that's why it's in some translations and not in others verse 2 says for the law and this is not like the mosaic law it's not like the law that's codified by congress it is a the principle that idea the principle of the spirit of life And notice it is the spirit of life. The Holy Spirit is the source of life. When we're spiritually dead, we are alienated from the life of God. Now in this church age, we not only are regenerate and have new life, but we have the Holy Spirit who is the one who gives life. And so the law of sin and death here is contrasted to what we have by the Holy Spirit, who is the spirit of life. Then second, we are to, we look down to verse 4, we see the contrast between those who live according to the flesh and those who live according to the spirit. This is talking about believers. Believers do not automatically live according to the spirit. Believers can only live according to the spirit if they're in the word and they know something. Uh, This is a big debate that that people have, that they think that somehow living the spiritual life to some degree is inevitable to those who are truly saved. But the problem is to know how to live beyond the gospel in terms of spiritual truth for Christian living, you have to be taught something about spiritual life and, and walking by the Spirit. And most people are never taught anything about the spiritual life. They're given they're given a handbook of what they think is Christian maturity. I mean, excuse me, Christian morality. But the spiritual life isn't morality. Any unbeliever can live a moral life. It is a life lived in, by means of God, the Holy Spirit. And so, uh, verse four says. Um, that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. And so you have this contrast again. There's some believers who live according to the flesh. Now that's just another way of talking about walk, because walking is a metaphor. It's the idea of going forward step by step but it's a metaphor for how a person lives their life, for how a person conducts their life. So walking according to the flesh and living according to the flesh are the same thing. Walking according to the Spirit in 8.4 is the same as living according to the Spirit in 8.5. And then we get down to uh, uh, the the, uh, second part of 8.5, and uh, in each of these clauses it says, those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. So those who are living according to the sin nature put the focus of their attention on the things that gratify the sin nature. That's what traps them in a non-spiritually productive life. And they don't, they're do not they not going to look any different from an unbeliever. In contrast, the believer who is living according to the Holy Spirit is going to set... They're thinking on the things of the Spirit of God. That doesn't happen overnight. That is a progress that occurs as we grow spiritually. The next thing we see here in this section is in verse 6. Verse 6, for to be carnally minded, that is to be, to have our mind focused on the flesh. See, that's a development of what we saw in verse 5, setting our mind on the things of the flesh. Uh, The carnally minded is the one who sets their thinking on the things of the flesh. That is death. That is carnal death. It is uh, living like you're spiritually dead, like an unbeliever. But to be spiritually minded, that is to have your mind set on the things of the spirit, to be spiritually minded is life and peace. And this is important to remember Uh, John 10.10 Jesus said the thief does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy but I have come that they may have life and life abundantly the way to have this life abundant is to walk by the spirit after you're saved when you're saved you get the first category of life you get eternal life but to have the experience of abundant life that comes as you grow and as you mature so this is what what is emphasized in verse verse 6 and then we come to verse 7 because the carnal mind is enmity against god for it is not subject to the law of god nor indeed can it be and this is not talking about the unbeliever's mind it's true about the unbeliever's mind but this is also true about the unbelievers. When we're out of fellowship, we cannot please God. And we are not submitting ourselves to the authority of God. And when, because we're walking by the sin nature, it is not until we confess sin that we can then reverse reverse course. And so verse 7 talks about this the, the flesh. So all the way through here, uh, what we see is this contrast... Between what the walking by the flesh is like and walking according to the Spirit. Now, if you think about Galatians five, and we'll get there. Galatians five sixteen says, "Walk by the Spirit, and you won't bring to completion the desires of uh, desires the flesh." It's five eighteen where we're told that we're led by the Spirit. So we have the same context in both uh, in both passages. Now, when we go beyond verse seven. Then we come to verse. uh, We'll we'll come to verse twelve, but I want to talk a minute about. See if I have it up here about verse seven, seven and eight. Because the carnal mind is at enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. So then, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Notice, there's a shift in terminology. Up to this point, he's been talking about uh, according to the Spirit or according to the flesh, and in a couple of places by means of the Spirit, but according to the flesh, but now it changes to in the flesh. What is happening here? When we go from 8 7 to 8 8, there is a shift in topic. It begins with a conjunction in the Greek that can indicate a continuation or it can indicate a contrast even to the degree of a introducing a new topic. And it's doing both. It's introducing a contrast, but the contrast is to a new topic. And in verses 8 and following down to verse, um, verse 11 what we're going to see is a description of the unbeliever. And in verse 8 he says, So then those who are in the flesh, that means those who are not saved, those who are still spiritually dead, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. We know that because in the previous chapter, in Romans 7 verse 5, Paul said, "When we were past tense, when we were in the flesh as unbelievers, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit to death." So, in the flesh means uh, unsaved. So, then those who are in the flesh cannot please God. But you, he's telling them, you're not in the flesh. See what happens in this in, in the transition into verses. Uh, 7 down through 10 is he's reminding them of who they are in Christ and what we all have together in Christ, which is the foundation for being able to live according to the spirit. This idea of, uh, of being in the flesh is critical for understanding this particular passage. And I want to go back just a minute. Let me see if... Skip there, Romans 8, 9 through 11. But you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he is not his. That makes it very clear that uh, when we are uh, unsaved, we're in the flesh. But when we're saved, we are in the spirit. Now, this is where I was telling you earlier, this is that use of the preposition in where it has what they call a locative sense we're in the spirit, it's not to be translated by means of the spirit uh, that I've told you many times that preposition in in the Greek is it, it, it's getting more and more broad and so you really have to look at the context to understand whether it's in the spirit by means of the spirit or in the spirit instead of uh, locative so here it's in the flesh is locative, so in the spirit would also be locative if the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now, the Spirit of God dwells in every believer. So what he is saying is, you're not in the flesh, you're not an unbeliever if the Spirit of God dwells in you, because the Spirit of God dwells in every single believer. And so he goes on to say at the end of verse 9, now if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, in other words, if the Holy Spirit is not dwelling in you, then you're not his. Now, you can't determine if the Spirit of God is dwelling in you by experience. We only learn about it when we read God's Word. But he's drawing a conclusion from this that because the Holy Spirit lives lives in every believer, that is the foundation for being able to live according to the Spirit. You can only know about this reality by studying the Word of God. So verse 10 he goes on to say, And if Christ is in you, a, the Holy Spirit is in you, and now is if, and this is true, Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin. Now we have to count ourselves as dead. This is the same argument that Paul uses over in Romans 6, 1 through 4, that we are to reckon ourselves dead to sin because we have been positionally identified with Christ on the cross, and because he died on the cross, we have died to sin. In other words, we don't have to continue to listen to the dictates of the sin nature uh, every time it comes along and entices us to do something. He says, if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the spirit is life because of righteousness. Remember, this corporal body is going to die physically. It's going to be gone. It's going to be buried. But we have life eternal. And because we have God, the Holy Spirit, we can still live according to the spirit and have a life of peace and joy and stability and happiness because we are Christ. Verse 11, but if he says, but if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, and he's saying, but if first class condition, if, and it's true, the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. That's talking about our future resurrection. So verses 9, 10, and 11 are a, a parenthesis, reminding the reader, reminding us of what we have when we are saved. That before we were saved, before we trusted Christ as Savior, we were in the flesh, we had no option but to sin. Now we are in the spirit God, the Holy Spirit dwells within us, Christ dwells within us, and we have an option to live for him. And that's the issue now. Are we going to live according to the sin nature? We don't have to do that anymore. Or are we going to live uh, according to the spirit? And this is where we go in verse 12. This is where we started. Therefore, brethren, we are under obligation. Now, what does that mean? It means that we have a responsibility because God has done something for us. This isn't legalism. It's if I were to give you a brand new car and no strings attached, I was going to make a present to you. Here's a brand new car and here are the keys. It's yours to drive. It's yours to do whatever whatever you're going to do with it. When I was, I was blown away by this because all my life my parents always were teaching me the value of hard work and the value of saving money and all I heard from the time I could comprehend its significance was that I would, uh, they would never give me a car, I had to earn it. When I graduated from high school they gave me a car. It was a 1970 white Ford Falcon with a three on the It wasn't on the floor. It it was three on the column, no air conditioning in Houston, Texas, and an AM radio. But I had a car. But I had to learn how to take care of that car. I had to take care of it. I had to take care of, you know, maintaining tire pressure, all of the basic things, oil changes, change of filter, inspection. I had to take care of all of those things. It was a free gift, it was mine, but I had a responsibility now. I had to take care of what I was given. And if I didn't take care of it, and there were times I didn't because I didn't, it was the first time I'd had a car and I didn't really know all the things you needed to do, um, then there would be consequent problems. And that's what life is like. We're given a new life in Christ. It is ours, it's a free gift, but we're under obligation to feed it. We're under obligation to walk by the Spirit and grow so that, we can, uh, so that we can experience all of the blessings that God has for us and that we can serve God effectively in our lives. And so what Paul is saying here, brethren, we're under obligation. God saved us. We don't do anything to earn, or earn it or deserve it. And by living in light of that obligation doesn't mean we're earning it or keeping it, it's just that if it's going to mean anything to us, if we're going to experience that peace and that joy and that stability that God promised us, then we have to live according to the Spirit and not according to the flesh. So we have this contrast. Uh, We're under obligation not to your sin nature. Your sin nature is not going to give you anything good. You just think it will. So you're not obligated now when the sin nature says that you need to do this or need to do that, that you don't need to do that. Uh, you're not obligated to live according to the flesh for if. Now he's, giving, he's going to explain the problem with living according to the flesh. If you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So verse 12 gives us the negative, verse 13 gives us the positive. And what we learn from that in the structure of this verse is that putting to death the things of the body is the same as l- being led by the Spirit in verse 14. Because verse 14 starts off saying, For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. Those who are led by the Spirit, who put to death the deeds of the flesh, grow to maturity. The word translated sons is not the word technon, which is what you find in other passages, which has to do with the child. This is a huyas. This is an adult mature son. Those who walk by the Spirit, are led by the Spirit. Walking by the Spirit is the flip side. If if somebody's leading me down a trail, somebody's leading me, I'm driving somewhere and I'm following somebody, they're leading me, my responsibility is to follow them. When I am, so, so being led by the Spirit means I'm following the Spirit, which is just another way of talking about walking by the Spirit. When you're walking, following somebody, they're leading, you're following, you're walking by them. It's, it's, that's what it's talking about. It's not talking about some sort of, uh, liver quiver, inner guidance in decision making. But it does in a broad sense, and I'll get to that in just a minute. So this is the, the key to spiritual maturity is to follow the leading of the spirit which means to walk by the spirit the one who walks by the spirit is the one who is led by the spirit to spiritual maturity now let's look at galatians 5 galatians 5 lays it all out very clearly same concept it's the same same context that we have in romans 8 Paul says, walk by means of the Spirit, and you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. And then verse 17 is an explanation. You've got got a battle going on between the sin nature and and a life lived according to the sin nature, life lived according to the Holy Spirit. The flesh lusts against the Spirit, the Spirit against the flesh, and these are contrary. These are in antagonism against one another, so that you do not do the things that you wish. But if you are led by the Spirit... See, leading the, the being led by the Spirit means if you are walking by the Spirit. If you're letting the Holy Spirit lead you, that means you're following Him, you're walking forward. If you are led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. That was the problem with the Galatians, is that they thought that the Mosaic Law was the key to spiritual growth. Now, I'm not going through all of Galatians 5. I've done that many times before about the spiritual life. But this section on walking by the Spirit is framed by verse 16, walk by the Spirit, then be led by the Spirit. That means to follow the Spirit. And then it closes out in verse 25, which says, if we live by means of the Spirit, because we're walking by the Spirit, he's leading us let us also walk by the Spirit. He ties it together, but here he doesn't use the same word that's used back in 5.16. 5.16 used the Greek word peripateho, which emphasizes that it's a step-by-step following. As you follow step-by-step, the Holy Spirit is leading you. He's the one who's showing you the path. In 5.25, it means to be in line with to line up, to follow his steps, be step by step, keeping in step with the Holy Spirit. Now, how does he do that? He doesn't do it by through feelings or emotions or through some sort of intuitive flash. He does it through the Word of God. When when it says here in 525, that has the idea of following a laid-out path. What's the laid-out path? It's the Word of God. That's how we know, that's how we are led by the Spirit, is we go to the Word of God, we study the Word of God. That tells us how we should live, how we shouldn't live. That gives us the guidance we need. It's not going to tell us the right thing to do every single day, whether to get up and drive to work one way or drive to work the other way or to put on red shoes or brown shoes or black shoes It's going to tell us how we should think and what our priorities should be and how we should live our life. And like Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 says, if we trust in the Lord, then he makes our paths straight. He guides and directs us that way, not by uh, giving us some sort of overt sign as to which choice we should make, but building in us through the Holy Spirit a frame of reference, a way of thinking biblically, so that we can make God honoring choices as we go through life. So that's what it means to be led by the Spirit. It's an objective standard to follow the Word of God. And when we're trusting in the Lord, He's going to direct our paths, not through some sort of external signals, but through He will marshal the circumstances and everything so that we go where he wants us to go. We don't have to sit around and navel-gaze to see uh, what kind of decision we ought to make today. That's just mysticism, which is paganism. So we are, if we're walking by the Spirit and reading the Word of God, we are being led by the Spirit of God with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we're thankful for this opportunity to study your word, to come to a clear understanding of what the scripture teaches, that as we walk by the Spirit, we're led by the Spirit. He leads us through your word. And it is through your word that we learn about all of the wonderful things that you have provided for us. We learn about our wonderful salvation, that Christ did everything for us. He died on the cross. He paid the penalty for our sin. Uh, We can't do anything to earn it or deserve it. Uh, We can't do anything to somehow merit God's grace. All we can do is trust in your word and trust in Christ as our Savior. And we know that the instant we trust in Christ as Savior, we have everlasting life. Uh, Father, we pray for those who may be listening today who've never understood the gospel, who've never uh, truly understood how to have uh, eternal life, that they would understand that it's based only on one thing, and that is believing on the Lord Jesus Christ, and we will be saved. Father, we thank you for what we've learned today, and pray that as we uh, live our life, that we will be reminded that we don't have, we don't have to follow our sin nature, we don't have to yield to those temptations. We are to walk by the Spirit and not according to the flesh. In Christ's name, we pray. Amen.